Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, the series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Look, it's been a while. I know that. Don't make me feel bad about it. We've been up to our eyeballs around here, as you can imagine. So I'm sorry this episode has taken so long to get out, but I hope I can make up for it with a star-studded mega edition of Catching Up on Capitol Hill this week. In this episode, I'm joined by four, yes, four colleagues, Manal Corwin, Danielle Rolfus, Ron Dabrowski, and Jen Acuna, all of whom you have met here before. Now, what are we talking about this week? We're talking about an idea, the idea that we have two tax reforms moving simultaneously and in parallel. That, of course, is the U.S. tax legislation, the Build Back Better Act, and the OECD's BEPS 2.0, Pillar 1, and Pillar 2 project. And it's striking how many similarities there are really in content and in process between the two. And that's what we try and get at today. But we conclude with the question of whether or how these two projects seemingly on parallel tracks are really ultimately on a collision course sooner or later. So how did we pull off this ambitious episode? Well, full disclosure, we are adapting this content from an event we all did together last week. Yes, I know last week was a long time ago in the tax world. I mean, it was before the Manchin-Schumer letter bombshell of yesterday, and more on that in the closing. But ask yourself, was that really news? Has it changed anything that much? I think not really. And how do I know? Well, in this episode, you'll hear Jen tell you later, in this episode recorded last week, that the biggest stumbling block to legislation is that there's still no agreement on the size of the reconciliation bill between Democrats in the House and Democrats in the Senate. So that's still the case as we saw unfold this week. So it's all good and I hope you enjoy this because there was really a lot of interesting analysis on the international aspects of the Ways and Means Bill and on where the OECD process currently stands. So with that, let's turn to the tape. Thank you, Greg. And good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. Of course, I'll echo, wouldn't it be great to be in Vail, but we're not. So, but we're still going to have a really interesting discussion here this morning on the topic of tax policy. No doubt, a lot to talk about. One of the themes, if you've been attending this event for a number of years, of course, has been complexity and the complexity of, of being a chief tax officer, how complex that has been. And I think what we can talk about today is it's only becoming more complex and really what we wanted to get at is this notion that there are, in effect, two different tax reforms happening simultaneously, moving in parallel, with the outcome uncertain in both. And the more we talked about it this panel, the more we realized that there are a number of questions that are really the same in both cases. So I think we can ask the same question, what's happening in the U.S., what's happening at the OECD, the same question. Now, I think we're going to find that the answers are different when we ask those questions in both cases. But nevertheless, the questions are, are much the same. Sort of reminds me of the, the old saying that, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And I think there is a lot of rhyming going on here between these two tax reforms happening in parallel. So that's what we wanted to get into for the next 45 minutes or so with you. Just a reminder, we are going to have ample opportunity for questions when we get into the breakouts, and I'm sure you'll have some. So take note of your questions and we'll get to them then. So to introduce those joining me for this, you know, to have this conversation, I think we're sort of, as Greg said, the dream team here. So first of all, I'll introduce Manal, whom you've all know, former 
former deputy secretary for international at Treasury, long experience negotiating complex tax matters at the OECD, obviously our expert on the topic of what's happening with BEPS 2.0. We've got Danielle Rolfus, a former Treasury person in the International Tax Council during the Obama years. I think when you look at the proposals that were included in that Ways and Means Bill, you can see the DNA of many of the things that were considered and developed by Danielle back then. And then bringing sort of the Hill experience, we've got my colleague, Jen Acuna. Many of you know Jen, she was chief tax counsel at the Senate Finance Committee, really the lead drafter of the TCJA. The last time we had a major tax bill done here in the U.S., so that experience is going to be very valuable. And then last and definitely not least, Ron Dabrowski. Ron, also former Senate finance person, among other things. And really up until this last bill, the drafter of the last major democratic tax reform bill during his time at the Senate Finance Committee. So we I think we're able to address this topic from all those different angles. And so thank you all for joining us. Let me start with really maybe you, Jen, and then Ron, get your take. Let's just start with U.S. reform, since that's sort of the topic that is most current. Where are we in this process? How close are we to actually getting something done or maybe even seeing something more happen? Let me start with you, Jen. Where are we? Sure. You know, it's funny because it seems like we have a lot of sprints and then stalls in the current process. So just last week, the House Ways and Means Committee marked up and reported out of committee the tax portions of the reconciliation bill. And since then, it seems like there have been some hiccups, not just at Ways and Means, because we did have one defector at Ways and Means, Stephanie Murphy, voted against the mark. But there have been other committees that have run into roadblocks. And these roadblocks are also delaying the consideration of the bill at rules, which is the next official stop on this reconciliation train. Yeah, I mean, it, that's just the House, right? Like, we haven't yeah. even talked about the Senate. So, Ron, your thoughts, like, where? The Senate, as a former Senate person, isn't just going to be happy to take the House bill, right? Part of the thing here, and we can get a little bit more into it, but how much is Wyden, Warner, and Brown a thing? Like, you know, they've come out with discussion drafts. You know, international is obviously driving a lot. That's a pretty big little block within the Senate Finance Committee. And how much are they going to need to get sort of satisfied along the way, especially when they've kind of written and come out in international? So, so that's going to be interesting. But more generally, the process has sort of hit the marks. Like we have all the moving parts in place. We sort of know what the debates are going to be on the corporate, international, and individual sides. And now we're sort of entering the funnel phase. But when you started this process on January 3rd, when we figured out what the composition in Congress is going to look like, we were on a path that was probably going to land in December. And you know, I think the process has hit its marks. In other words, still landing in December is where we're going to yeah, decide. Well, again, yeah, I mean, Don't I say always. A, a steal your line, but that's the drop dead date, right? I mean, right. that's, that's, that's the know. only real deadline, especially once yeah. we get past September 30th. Okay, that's that's a deadline that has teeth for the CR, potentially for the debt limit. But where are the teeth for this tax bill until you get to let's get out of town for the holidays? There really isn't one. Jen, let me ask you one question. So Ron mentioned Wyden in particular, but the process that we've seen in the Senate with the international draft and other things. In 2017, the TCJA was marked up in the Senate Finance Committee. That is by far the exception to when we see budget reconciliation legislation that has skipped committee. So remind us what the dynamic was then that you did do it in committee, because I think it's widely assumed that they will skip the Senate Finance Committee, sort of making Ron Wyden less influential in the Senate. So why in 2017 did it go through committee? Well, there was a member mandate for it to go through committee. There was a big push 
from members of the committee and off committee members to have the bill go through regular order. And that meant the committee marking it up and reporting it out. And because it was a pretty narrow spread in the Senate at that time, can't afford to lose any votes, there was enough pressure to move it through a committee, even though it was risky. There were a lot of members that were really uncomfortable with marking up the bill, but eventually you had so many members that were insisting on the committee process that had to be done. And it's interesting, we aren't hearing that call this year from Democratic Senate finance members, like regular order, we must go through, crickets on that, right? Well, it's complicated now in the Senate because of this 50-50 split, you have this power sharing agreement where you have even split at committee and the only way to break a tie is with a floor vote, which is very risky. I mean, that's even riskier than having a narrow majority. So there isn't a whole lot of appetite to put the bill in peril like that. So just to conclude where we are, and, uh, you know, look, we've, we've obviously got a bill in from the House, but we've still got a long way to go. I mean, I don't get the sense that the Senate's really that close to being either ready to sign off on the House bill. No. Produce its own content? Probably not. Like, not anytime soon. So I think you're right. We're in this fits and starts, and we're about to go to a holding period, certainly till September 30th, we think, before at some point the House gets into action again. But I think this is going to be all year and it's going to go slow and we're probably looking at December again. I think we're all in agreement with that. Okay. All right. So now let me come to you then. So to get our rhyming down here, right, let's ask the question of where are we in the OECD process? Has it been similar fits and starts or is it more methodical? And it seems like they've been, when they set a date that we're going to do X on this date, they do X on that date. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I mean, they certainly declare that they've done that. I think there's a little looser as to what success looks like and that they do meet their milestones, but the scope of what they're able to deliver is not quite necessarily what it sounds like when they first make the statement. So not so much fits and starts, but there's definitely a rhyming with respect to the uncertainty and where we're going to land. We started the last big release at the OECD was that July 1st statement. At the time, it was evidencing agreement by 130 members of the 139 inclusive framework to the outlines and the framework and some of the details of the the two-pillar approach. What we've seen since then is the inclusive framework size has grown by one. So we've got 140 jurisdictions in members now. And of those, 134 are signed on to this statement. So, you know, that's a pretty big deal. You've got consensus, at least to the idea of a pillar one new taxing right and the concept of a global min tax with a number of agreement on points of detail. The working groups, what's been happening since then is they've sort of gone underground a little bit to sort of work through the details, racing to this October finish line that they've set out in that statement, which corresponds with the the next set of G20 meetings. So throughout August and right now, the working parties within the OECD secretariat are trying to hammer out some of the technical details, but mainly the ones that are really important for achieving consensus on some of the outstanding key political issues, they need to be able to say they've agreed in order to put out a positive statement in October that they've moved forward. The next meeting of the Inclusive Framework is the end of September. The G20 meetings are October. The finance ministers are meeting on October uh, 11th and 12th, and then the leaders at the end of October. Our expectation is we will see another formal statement emerge from the OECD in mid-October and hopefully a a formal detailed draft of the model legislation they're working on. We saw a leaked draft of that model legislation for Pillar 2, and we're hearing bits and pieces coming out 
of the OECD as to progress being made there. So we don't expect seeing anything major again until October. I don't think the promise of what the July statement said would happen in October is going to be quite as extensive as they said. I think they will have some key issues to be able to say, yep, we're, we're on track, we're moving forward, but there's going to be a lot of technical work that comes post-October. And right now they haven't formally been doing consultations with the public and, and taxpayers. There are a lot of informal conversations happening, and I think there'll be a lot of appetite for input on some of the detailed design post-October. So I think mid-October is what we're going to expect to see some more. It will be a declaration of victory, I think, and then tons and tons of work thereafter. Their target dates in the July statement for implement was adoption of all of this into law by 2022 with effective dates in 2023. I think that's still a really ambitious set of deadlines. So one of the things I'm waiting to see in the October G20 statements is whether they soften those deadlines, just taking into account practical realities. If they were to miss the mark on any of these dates, I mean, would that have major consequences or would that be viewed as, okay, well, this is complex, really hard stuff. It takes time. Because yeah, that's the way it's viewed here in the U.S. So they want to get it done, but people realize how hard it is on the U.S. process. So they're yeah. working on it. Or do you think that would have real consequences if they missed one of their stated dates? I think if they were to get to a date and they've got nothing, nothing has changed, nothing is new, that would be probably very critical, put that the, the process into somewhat critical condition. I think what they've managed to do throughout this process is really satisfy every deadline in part, just enough to be able to say we're, we're still on track, but be able to buy time. And I think that's the pattern we've seen. You get to the, the deadline set, they deliver some aspect of what they said they've delivered, but they simultaneously are buying time to do more that they need to do that they thought they might have gotten done the first time they set the deadline, but couldn't actually deliver on. So I think that's the pattern we've seen, and I don't think October is going to be any different. One of the things you mentioned, which is this implementation date, is going to be really important for all sorts of reasons. And we're going to come back to why it could be really important, even for the U.S. legislative process. So that's going to be a really interesting one. I, I agree. 100% agree. Yep. Okay, let's come back to the U.S. legislation. Danielle, let me go to you then. Okay, it's been how many days now? Nine, 10, I don't know, whatever it is. We, we've read it. What were some of the surprising things to you that we got in that Ways and Means Bill? Well, let me start with a positive, which is we know that their timeline was accelerated. So they were really, I think, jamming at the end there to get this thing out. And especially in that context, I think it is surprising how comprehensive the House proposal was in that they didn't, you know, we knew there was going to be country by country guilty with an increased guilty rate. And we knew that they had to do something to take on some of the harshness of guilty under TCJA of it being a totally annual approach. You just could not fold that approach into a country by country regime. It would be ridiculously unfair. And I think we knew they were going to have to do something about that. But they really went above and beyond those have-to-dos to take on some aspects of really fixing up policies in TCJA that weren't necessarily implicated by going to a country-by-country -country system. I can call out just a couple that it surprised me. In some cases, they're spending revenue on fixing up these aspects of TCJA. For example, under TCJA, the Section 250 deduction that gives you a reduced rate for guilty and fitty is subject to a taxable income limitation. I can't think of a policy reason as to why the tax break on FIDI and a reduced rate on guilty shouldn't be available to a company that has a bad year. I, I can't defend that policy choice, but it's really not implicated by going to country by country. 
but the Democratic proposal nonetheless spends revenue to fix that. They also, in B, for example, there's the treatment of net operating losses. It didn't really make any sense under the TCJA. They rationalize it. I, I suspect it actually cost a little bit of revenue what they did, but they just made it make sense. So I was surprised at some of the investment that they did around just kind of fixing up the foundation of TCJA. We've learned a lot from living with the TCJA for a few years about where it worked, didn't work. And they have fairly comprehensive proposals fixing up some of those aspects. There are obviously places where, you know, you can see the rush job. <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, and maybe where the policies make less sense. To call out just one example, I was surprised at what they did on interest deductions. A number of aspects of what they did on interest surprised me. And I think we're calling this the 160, I think they call it, it's now in the legislative text as 163N. I am surprised that they married inbound and outbound into the same proposal so that for outbound companies, U.S. parents and multinationals, they're also using financial statements to determine the portion of their debt that should be viewed as allocable to the CFCs. And I'm also surprised it's a pretty harsh proposal because any interest of a U.S. group that naturally has all their debt, you know, at the U.S. parent level in the U.S. group that is viewed as, you know, supporting CFCs would be fully denied under this proposal with no recognition of the fact that many U.S. companies might be paying residual tax if it's low taxed CFC income or maybe there's subpart F income that's fully taxed. And I can contrast that with the Obama approach to that policy, which you know was also criticized as being too harsh, but it was different in those two respects I just called out in that for U.S. parented outbound companies, they didn't rely on financial statements to allocate interest expense. There was more of an effort to leverage the existing rules. And they also would have allowed deductions to the extent residual tax was being paid in the U.S., there was a recognition if the U.S. is asserting taxing rights over that income, there should be at least some portion of a deduction. So that 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 whole policy around interest deductions, I also find to be kind of not totally coordinated with the rest of the bill. It doesn't raise a whole lot of money on the whole. It's I think both inbounds and outbounds aren't going to be very happy with it. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. You know, they had a revenue bogey they needed to hit. Maybe they don't end up needing everything that's in this bill the particulars of that one did surprise me. Ron, let me ask you a question because we did a webcast on this. I don't know, what was it, yesterday, two days ago? All the days are running together. But one of the observations that we made that was surprising to me, you know, we had this parlor game going on, you know, as we were trying to anticipate how this bill was going to come together. How much money did they need? You know, like we, I think we said, let's just assume they need, you know, $1.5 trillion. Where is it going to come from? And we knew we'd, they'd get some from the rate. And we also had put a number on guilty, I think, we thought they would get maybe $300 billion out of, out of guilty. In the end, they got very little out of guilty, right? When you look at the things that Danielle just talked about, some of the architectural changes, really not very much. Was that surprising to you? Yeah, I think sort of all across the board, a number of sort of policy and financial decisions, like how they crafted the package and the difference between the Neil approach versus the Biden approach was just, you know, pretty big. And in a number of things, I think, you know, they've, they've reset the sort of boundaries, right? Like, you know, when you come out with a 16 and a half percent guilty rate, like we ain't going back up to 21, you know, and 75% is not a norm. So, you know, like, like we've, we've moved on from that. 
Fitty, we're going to not repeal Fitty. We're going to go put R&D back in ourselves, and we're going to go raise revenue incrementally out of Fitty. You know, definitely a totally different approach than where Biden was going, you know, this whole, you know, tax subsidy or whatever thing. Not a problem for, you know, the Dems in the House. It's, Fitty has a role to play. We need it, you know, however it came out, it's there and enhanced. So, you know, I think those points are, are spot on. It did reset sort of, you know, the go forward on international particularly, but the uh, minimum tax, the uh, AMT, 15% worldwide, like that's not coming back, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So Jen, just one quick question to compare this to what happened in 2017. If, if I understand correctly, in 2017, you were told, you know, as, as the dutiful staffer, like, we need the guilty rate to be as low as possible, but still raise X. So you figure out how to make it raise X with the lowest possible rate. It seems like Democrats are doing the opposite thing. They were willing to go a little bit higher on the rate because we sort of thought they'd settle at 15, which is the pillar two, you know, baseline rate, and then not do all the benefits, the good stuff that Danielle talked about. Isn't that true in 2017 that you were really focused on getting the rate as low as possible and then somehow finding a way to raise the revenue? Yeah, I mean, the one thing that became really clear, and I think that's it's somewhat clear now as well, is members respond to rates, right? They don't respond to technical changes that cost revenue. Yeah. They want to know what is the rate and not worry about the, you know, the details. Right, what's and the point? As long as they saw a low rate, they were happy. They were comfortable with that. So, so, and that's why, you know, this approach is different because it's a higher rate, but there's a lot of technical relief embedded in the proposals. And, you know, who knows if the Senate will be more rate focused yeah. and less, you know, in the plumbing. Right. So if, if the Senate comes out and says, hey, our guilty is 15 percent. Oh, and by the way, we didn't do all the stuff. The yep. good stuff that the House did. Our Senate's going to go, yeah, our, ours is way better. It's 15 percent. That's just an interesting question, an open question, how that's going to play. I think that's a real risk. Yeah, right. yeah. Okay. This bill feels like it was written by technicians. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it's an indication. Look, let's be honest. Ways and Means Committee staff is pretty technical. There's some really strong staffers there, and they thought long and hard about these things. So it looks like that. Okay. Manel, with some of the things we just talked about, do you feel like the House bill, some of the changes we've got now, we talked about guilty, sort of reference speed, you know, the, the interest limitation. Do you think this gets us closer to a deal at the OECD or further where the U.S. might end up based on the House or the Ways and Means Bill? Yeah, well, with respect to Pillar 2, certainly closer. Um, you know, the administration has made the adoption of a global minimum tax a centerpiece of its at least global policies. And they made a lot of commitments there as to what the U.S. would be able to deliver to align with what the OECD has now agreed in that July statement. The members there know that what Treasury promises and what actually can get delivered depends on Congress going along. And so the Ways and Means Bill is sort of the first indication of where this may go. The things that the administration really needed to show that this is going to go forward, they're going to be able to deliver on their promise, was one on the guilty rate. And the conversation you were just having as to like what that rate means, that rate is important. It, it is an effective rate from an OECD perspective. They see, well, our deduction results in a 10 and a half percent rate. That's the rate that's used by a lot of folks. But, you know, obviously companies know that that 10 and a half percent is not accurate once you take into account other things like the foreign tax credit haircut. But either way, you've got this rate out there now that is below what the U.S., administration has said would be too low, right? They've said that uh, with respect to a global minimum tax, they want at least 15%. The statement that came out was 
agreed at 15%. And then, you know, recently you had Treasury putting out a blog, Ty Grimberg and, and Rebecca Kaiser putting out a blog trying to defend why 21% for guilty would be better. Where the Ways and Means landed is in a place that works for at least the global deal. And so the 16 and a half percent works out from their perspective. As you said, there's other things that they've done in there that would soften that. We'll see where that goes in the Senate. But so far, that seems aligned with where the OECD agreement is. I think countries are still kind of waiting to see where it will land, Ireland in particular, paying attention. Or another key aspect of guilty that was important from an inclusive framework perspective to get aligned is to move from this global blending approach to determining the guilty tax to a jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Biden administration committed to that in their Green Book and the Ways and Means bill follows suit. So that ticks that box. The issue of whether we're going to have a carve out for QBI or not, you know, the OECD still has a substance-based carve out, so it really doesn't impact the deal. What you see is Ways and Means trying to get it closer to the substance-based carve out, at least from a percent perspective, that you've agreed to at the OECD, but really no impact on, on agreement. Really, the other big one was BEAT. BEAT was viewed by the members of the inclusive framework as discriminatory under treaties. I think it's viewed as a unilateral measure, you know, with respect to the Pillar 1 agreement. It's completely not aligned as currently enacted with the approach in Pillar 2 to a, an under-tax payment rule. And the administration had promised, you know, very, very big move. We're going to repeal BEAT and replace it with SHIELD or the bludgeon that was SHIELD, the really, really draconian measure that itself actually wasn't aligned with the under-tax payment rule and would have had to be modified. But at the time it was proposed by the administration, they hadn't really gotten to the July agreement. And the, the U.S. had said, well, that's there to get as an incentive for other countries to sign on. But both beat as it exists and aspects of SHIELD as proposed would have been problematic for the agreement. What Ways and Means done has actually moved it considerably. They've opted out of following the administration's lead on SHIELD, but they have modified BEAT in a number of ways that get it to a place where it is closer to what would be acceptable. So the major issue with BEAT was it didn't take into account the uh, foreign taxes imposed on payment in determining whether a deduction is, is denied. It, was, it operated a little more like an alternative minimum tax. That has been modified by you know, signaling taking into account foreign taxes. But more important, I mean, it's still, if you look at the way it's drafted, it's still not perfectly aligned. But the really important piece in there was the broad treasury authority, the broad regulatory authority granted to treasury that seemed to allow sufficient room that it can get aligned. So I think it goes a fair way to at least signaling a willingness to make it such that it would be comfortable both from a pillar two and pillar one perspective. The rest of the mechanics of guilty, not so critical. I mean, the July agreement did allow for guilty coexistence. It does not have to match 100%. It's really those big picture items that were we needed to keep an eye on. So I think the signal from Fusa Framework is this is a positive development and shows is a hopeful sign that things will move in the direction that is necessary from a U.S. perspective to get a deal at the OECD. However, no mention of Pillar 1, and it's important to sort of just flag that from the perspective of the OECD, a deal is a package deal. It includes both Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, and a number of countries actually don't really care much about Pillar 2. They care about Pillar 1, and there's silence so far as to whether or not Congress can deliver on the administration's promise and commitments with respect to Pillar 1. So that is the big question mark at this point.
It is a big question mark. I suspect it's going to remain that way. Who knows? Maybe Congress will have a change of heart and take up pillar one, but certainly we aren't hearing that there's a lot of interest in that. But one of the other interesting things is if all of you who are probably pretty engaged in Capitol Hill and policymakers, we've been hearing all year from Congress, like, yeah, this OECD thing, you know, yeah, it's important, but it's not really what's driving and motivating us that, you know, we're doing our own thing. And I was a little surprised, maybe pleasantly so. In the end, what you saw, the changes you just talked about, Manal, is while they didn't exactly say that they were going to conform and really get in on board with Pillar 2, they kind of got there, whether it was by accident or by design. They did what they had to do, even if they didn't go all the way, you know, to what Treasury was asking for, you know, Shield and other things. They got there close enough. Uh, Again, by accident or design, we don't know. Yeah, and they took care of it in two ways, just to, because I think it's important. They, they not only did what Treasury needed to deliver on their commitment, but they were also listening to taxpayers' concerns about competitiveness, right? So they they added, you know, the, the concerns about, well, look, the rate, you know, you have this expense allocation, you have the foreign tax credit haircut, that, you know, you've got the the fact that others are going to get substance-based carve-out, and, we, and, and, you know, they're, they're proposing to repeal QBI and, and the percent. So you see a movement to alignment that is addressing really both Treasury's interests, but as well as some of the taxpayer concerns about competitiveness and, and making sense to, to align. Yep. Those are those things we were attributing to the technicians drafting that it's not about the top line rate, but there are a whole bunch of hidden aspects of guilty that really don't make it comparable to a pillar two approach that's truly a top up tax. So it was welcome and maybe because of the comparisons to pillar two that we got some of that relief and guilty i I agree with you that they brought us closer to pillar two and certainly nothing that's in the house bill brings us further apart the one thing i will say is uh, pillar two of course countries aren't required to implement pillar two it's a set of model rules the shield proposal had as a stated policy objective you called it a bludgeon clubbing countries it's so violent but trying to club some other countries into coming along and in fact implementing this cfc type regime called the income inclusion rule the beat proposals in the house are sufficiently watered down that i don't think they serve that role of incentivizing other countries to go along with pillar two which is really the other part of the competitiveness point it's you know all well and good if our guilty looks a lot like pillar two income inclusion rule but if countries don't adopt the pillar two income inclusion rule and if companies have the ability to invert or you know be taken over by companies headquartered in jurisdictions that don't it only takes a few and this proposal kind of i don't i don't think congress was really feeling it (laughs) about using the shield or converting beat to have that bludgeon effect. And maybe it is because we were all so effective as describing it that way that they were a little turned off. (laughs) That was one of my next questions. So let's just jump to that one. Then we'll come back to the U.S. again in a second. But one of the questions I had was, what are the stumbling blocks ahead of this OECD process? Because it all sounds great. You know, they're moving along. They're meeting the marks mostly. There's still some things that to be negotiated. This thing you just mentioned, Danielle, could this be problematic? You know, is there enough there to really compel the participating countries to adopt pillar two, right? Because if they don't, then we've got all sorts of problems, right? In the U.S., outside the U.S. So what are some of the other, is that a stumbling block? What are the other ones that they still have to overcome, do you think, potentially at the OECD? So I would start with the EU, and then I'd say U.S. Congress. So 
the EU, there are issues with Pillar 2 in the EU. They have their fundamental freedoms. At least when we were doing BEPS 1.0, the general understanding was you couldn't have a tax rate test in a CFC rule. You needed substance-based carve-out. Clearly, the EU has moved, you know, in terms of the commission and the negotiating posture at the OECD, there has been considerable movement on those questions. It seems the EU's treaty may be as fluid and living of a document as our constitution in that movement. But I will say there are still holdouts in the EU. I think we were talking yesterday, Manal, four countries, Ireland, Cyprus, Hungary, and Estonia, which each four have their own issues. But there are four. Nobody's alone in that. And when there isn't a shield, they're like kind of forcing those countries to be rooting for the EU to make it possible for them to have an income inclusion role. You know, it's one thing to get pillar two through. It's another thing to get the EU to adopt it. And the second point, the reason I said the U.S. Congress is it's a package deal and the UK and a number of other countries have no interest in adopting a pillar two regime if the US isn't going to implement pillar one and acknowledge these new taxing rights that they want to assert. And that goes for a number of not just smaller countries in the EU, but like, you know, France and other countries in the EU for which pillar one is very important. So we can't pocket the pillar two, you know, the converging consensus on pillar two if the U.S. isn't prepared to act on Pillar 1, I think it poses a real question about do we actually see Pillar 2 implemented, even if we get strong agreement in October. Yeah, and just picking up on the EU point, you know, our colleagues in the EU recognize you've got these four countries, it sounds bad. The EU, in order to do a directive, which they in theory need to deal with the EU freedoms, the treaty freedoms to be able to implement IIRs, it would need unanimity. So four holdouts, one of which is not an inclusive framework member, Cyprus is not a member of the inclusive framework. If you actually break it down um, and you talk to them, the concerns are feel less daunting. There is a sense that historically Cyprus has gone along. It's not gonna. It's not gonna continue holding out. It will. It will eventually fold. With respect to Estonia, I think they're principally concerned about preserving. They've got a corporate income tax with a distribution system, so they want to be able to say we're protected, even though we're not taxed until distribution. And the the technical work at the OECD and Pillar Two seems to be allowing for systems like that as long as you distribute within a time period. They're talking about four years. Hungary has all kinds of issues with the EU that have nothing to do with the OECD. It's the rule of law issues and other. They do care about the substance-based carve-out. And so they're sort of negotiating, can the EU do this and have a substance-based carve-out carve out that's a little bit more generous? And then there's Ireland. And Ireland does not like to be a standout among jurisdictions, certainly at the OECD and within Europe, as a, a country that doesn't believe in protecting against base erosion and profit shifting. So the general view is that Ireland is eventually going to come along. The, the most recent that we're hearing is that there's a good chance that they'll keep their 12.5% rate for entities that have revenue below 750 million euro, but raise it to 15% for above the threshold. So the threshold for application of pillar two, but we think they're going to go along. One final thing to say is what are the vehicles for implementation? They talk about a directive, which def, you know needs unanimity, but they can actually also do a directive with enhanced cooperation that, that doesn't necessarily bring everyone in. And so that's another way to deliver on pillar two without necessarily say getting one of those jurisdictions. And then finally, more recently, they've talked about the possibility of doing it not as a directive, 
but having model legislation that the EU then blesses as within the rules under the, the EU treaty that would allow countries to adopt it. So there seem to be multiple paths to a finish line here that I think the EU can deliver. And then there's the questions about whether the U.S. can deliver. Maybe we'll pick those up for the U.S. Well, it's your boy. We thought the U.S. process is complicated and it is, but clearly is there, too. So, OK, let's come back to the U.S. then, because I had two questions here. Let's just put them together. And, you know, I was a little surprised at that 97 percent number that Greg showed us that 97 percent of those polled think that we're going to get a major tax law change either this year or next year. I think in the U.S. it's got to be this year. Right? I think we're significantly discounting the possibility of doing something next year in a midterm election year. So let's just focus on this year. 97%, I mean, there's not 97% chance that Congress uh, can show up on any given day, let alone do it. All <laughs> right. I mean, so that's question one is what stumbling blocks do they still have to get over? Because there are some meaningful ones. And then a separate question are, okay, with those stumbling blocks, what are the big pieces that still have to be negotiated between the House and the Senate? So Jen, what are the stumbling blocks? Then Ron, I'm going to come back to you on the big pieces you think the House and the Senate still have to work out. Go ahead, Jen. Well, I think the biggest stumbling block, and I think it's symptomatic of the bigger overarching issue, is the lack of agreement on the size of the bill, right? Because this is a reconciliation bill, it all boils down to how much can be spent, how much can be added to the deficit, and how much politically Democrats are comfortable with spending, not on net, but the gross amount of spending. And I think part of the problem with setting that limit has been that there's no unifying policy, no must pass in the bill, right? Right now, it's just you know, kind of like an arbitrary amount of spend. And that's what that's part of the problem, right? There's no unifying policy that costs X amount of dollars that absolutely must be included in the bill. And that's why we see those numbers shifting um, day to day. Mm. I, I, I think that is the number one roadblock right now. Right. I mean, Joe Manchin has made it clear he doesn't want to do a $3.5 trillion bill, and he has veto yeah. authority on this bill, de facto veto authority. And so that's a really complicated question. And I'm sure there are many House Democrats that are saying, especially on the Ways and Means Committee, why did you make me vote for $2.8 trillion of revenue raisers between the tax increases and the prescription drug pricing on a bill that may not survive in the Senate? That's a big stumbling block to work out. How big is this bill going to be in the end? All right, Ron, on the tax front, what are some of the big pieces you think that the House and the Senate are going to have to work out? It's going to get small. I think we've talked a little bit amongst ourselves on, you know, usually packages get bigger, you spend more. But, you know, this one seems to have a, a funnel going the other way. For me, it's going to be interesting. We have from the House a trillion on individual, a trillion on corporate. Those ratios aren't set in stone. They didn't come from on high. Who's going to win there? I get the sense that, and you know, you talked about sort of the effect of rates versus plumbing. Like there's a lot of rate stuff on that individual side that is you know, creating howls and, and, and major mm -hmm. angst. And turning those dials seems to be a lot easier. You know, when you look over at the corporate side, I see 26.5 and 16.5, and, and my mind turns them into 25 and 15. Like, yeah. like that's that seems to be a landing spot, but that's not a big chunk of change for shrinking, kind of, you know, in, in trying to balance this out. Competition between the individual side and the corporate side, like I think the individual side is going to get shrunk appreciably more. Yeah. Or at least I think that is sort of the concern. And I think that's part of the dynamic that'll play between the rest of the House process and into the Senate. 
The other Senate side getting into the sort of the design pieces, I raised it before, widen Warner Brown. Like, like again, is that a real thing? Like, come out and set a position. I, I can't imagine having legislation passed out of the Senate that is not going to reflect something that they moved for. The flip side is, you know, we, we call it House versus Senate, but I'm not so sure that Senator Schumer isn't just, House bill's good enough. Like, I just want a deal. And if we can shrink it down, good enough. But, you know, I think there is going to be some reality in the Senate itself. And you have 50 sort of independent entrepreneurs, and they're going to have something to say about what the final product is. Yeah, the other thing we haven't talked about and they aren't talking about is, remember, they gave themselves $1.75 trillion of deficit financing of this bill in their reconciliation instructions. They didn't, they only used, I think, about 700 of it in the House version. They've still got a trillion of, you know, air quote, free money, right? I, I know that there's political friction on deficit financing as well, but historically, that's the path of least resistance. And that's another place they can always fall back to. At that point, it's like, we're one good inflation score between October, November, and December for making yeah. this much easier. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. Or well, one bad one for making it that okay, much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's good the other way. Right. And somebody asked, you know, is, is uh, the inflation transitory? Like in, in Congress, transitory just means does it go away before the next election? Like leave the economy to fight over what transitory versus structural is. For them, it's all about November 2022. OK, last question. I start for all of you, but maybe I'll ask Danielle or Manal to start on this one. I start off by saying we had tax, two tax reforms in parallel. That's wrong. They're actually on a collision course, inevitably. Right. They do not run in parallel forever. Eventually they collide. What are the major pieces we need to think about of how the OECD plan and the U.S. plan collide and what the implications are for that? Yeah, let me just start and pick up where Danielle, you know, you mentioned the pillar one challenge and it's really, really important. You know, there's silence so far um, in, from the Hill on, on pillar one. It is, uh, it is a critical part of the deal, so it's not going to happen without it as far as the U.K. and other countries are concerned. I don't think that silence is intended to send a message. I think right now it is about the fact that there's probably not enough meat on the bones there to draft legislative language. That said, I think everybody agrees that in order for pillar one to be adopted, you need legislation. Then there's the question of, okay, we need some sort of congressional act. There's a lot who feel it has to be done through treaty. So it would be, you know, Senate advice and consent where there is no reconciliation process where you can get a majority. I think there is a path to do this out. In fact, I think it has to. There are aspects of adopting Pillar 1, in particular the portions of which the U.S. gets to impose this new tax, that actually have to be done by legislation. A treaty can't do that. So I think it can be done by legislation. I think the, the question is, can you do it through reconciliation? And, you know, my belief is that you can, because you are giving the U.S. a new taxing right, you would simultaneously need to effectively undo and override treaties that would have limited that taxing right or limited the ability of another country to impose that taxing right on U.S. entities, I think there is a path to do that in a single statutory provision that has the effect of overriding treaties and paving the way for administrative agreements that other countries can adopt through their uh, legislatures and ratify and have the effect of you know, allowing this to come to life um, without the Senate being involved from a treaty, Senate foreign relations and, you know, treaty advice and consent. So it's a big stumbling block. I think there's a path forward, but I think they got to decide quickly because it might be hard not to, to do it other than through reconciliation. And if I understand pillar one, how it would work, 
it's a revenue raiser, right? Like if Congress were to do this, this raises revenue because we're expanding our taxing authority via legislation, but then the piece that we're kind of giving away is done by agreement or treaty or whatever, which doesn't get scored. So it has that appeal, which is this is, even though it might be revenue neutral net net in the real world, at least by the way, Congress counts, it could be a revenue raiser. Yeah, that's an important distinction because people talk about, well, is the US a, a loser or a winner in, in like a fully implemented or one amount A? And it's not clear. A lot of people have different views. It's close to the line, probably. But from a legislative perspective, as you said, John and Jen, we've talked about this. It's actually a pure revenue raiser because the costs don't get scored until they're not real yet. So Although it's actually pretty novel that we don't score treaties. And I would suspect if you the pot, it's exactly as you described, the revenue raising part would naturally get scored and the treaty yep. let give away taxing rights wouldn't. I would be really surprised if nobody called on the JCT to do a score on this one. So I think they're going to have to be held to account. Right. It's an interesting question if they could or would. Danielle, we only have a minute or two left here. Let me ask you. So that was pillar one. Let me ask you about pillar two. Uh, play this scenario out for me. The October report comes out and it says we will implement pillar two 2023 or 2024. Who knows what date they're going to come out with? That leaves a mark on the U.S. legislative process, right? If they were to come out and say the rest of the world's not going to adopt Pillar 2 for years uh, into the future, potentially, would that make it much harder for the U.S. to act urgently on doing guilt the guilty changes? I mean, we already have, what was it, 11 Democrats, six members of Ways and Means saying the U.S. shouldn't get ahead on substance or timeline from the OECD work. I personally I would be surprised if Octo if in October the OECD acknowledged that their timeline doesn't work, in particular because that would be so harmful to the US process. <laughs> but I still think it's a reality. But we've already talked about how Congress likes to focus on headlines rather than maybe the technical realities underneath. So I'm not sure they'll have to face that in stark terms, although I'm sure folks on the Hill, you know, are visiting their Congress people to try to help them understand that point. Yeah. I, I What's that, Ron? It didn't slow Neil down. You know, I mean, his effective date is one right. twenty two. So, you know. The letter seems to have been ignored. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Or backroom negotiated. Yeah, in yeah, right. right. Or still under consideration, perhaps. Right, right. Well, I hope you all found that discussion useful. It's such a rare opportunity to get that much experience and that much brain power together at once. I really wanted to share it with all of you. Now, for a second, let's go back to the events unfolding in Washington this week and perhaps into this weekend. I know it seems a little chaotic and some are wondering aloud if this whole process might even fall apart. But one lesson I've learned from doing this job for, well, a long time is to never get too high and to never get too low. I mean, if you follow the daily news inside the Beltway, it's easy to get whiplash as the momentum swings back and forth. But I think the lesson here is don't lose the thread. Democrats largely agree on big pieces of tax policy to raise the corporate rate, to raise the guilty rate, to raise the ordinary income rate for individuals, to raise the capital gains rate. Yes, they vary in degree on these points, but those are the sort of things that can be generally worked out. Look, it was obvious that this moment of reckoning that we saw happen this week was coming. Back in our episode called The House Makes a Deal, when Speaker Pelosi was able to secure votes for the budget, we said then that more than anything, both the moderates and the progressives, they had lived to fight another day. Well, that day is now, I guess. And it was pretty obvious to everyone that $3.5 trillion, that number wasn't really gonna happen. Too many senators had been clear on that point for some time. 
But maybe it's equally true now that Joe Manchin's $1.5 trillion number, that that's not going to happen either, that it's going to have to be higher. So the question, the question being debated at this moment is, what is the real number? And I'll be honest, I don't know. As we've said here before, these things that are a matter of negotiation, they just aren't knowable. But at some point, Congress will agree to a number, and then the process of developing this bill will continue. I really believe that. But we still have a long way to go in that process. The bill still has to pass the House, and it will need changes to do so, and that will take time. Meanwhile, of course, Congress is still wrestling with the debt limit and Secretary Yellen's October 18th deadline. And still, even when the House does get a bill out, then the Senate will have its say. And yes, the Senate will have a say. That will take time. And then we'll reconcile the House and the Senate bills, add in Thanksgiving, and there you have it. It's December. So settle in, folks. This drama isn't going away anytime soon, and we'll be with you every step of the way. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and your suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and hope to see you soon.